Let's pray. Ask the Lord to help us as we prepare to hear the reading and preaching of his word. Lord, our gracious God, we are thankful that you have blessed us with the gift of your word that you've spoken, that you've not left us in darkness to wander and and to try to to somehow uh, discern your thoughts. That though the the heavens and this creation and this world declares your glory and your existence, we are thankful that you've given to us your word, which you've revealed to us the gospel, you've revealed to us who you are, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So we ask this morning as we come to your word, as we hear it read, as, as we hear it preached, that the Spirit would be working mightily amongst us, that we might see great fruit coming forth in the, the calling and saving of the lost, and, and Lord, also in the equipping of the saints, and the building up of your church. Oh Lord, do this for your glory and our benefit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you'll turn your Bibles or tap on your devices uh, and and make it to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount as we'll be looking uh, through chapters 5 and 7 in in Matthew. As I've reminded us each time and and hopefully will will help set for us uh, a little bit of the context of what we're looking at is we look at the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes uh, right now, is uh, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson has, has written about this sermon of Christ. He writes, it's not a sermon about an ideal life and an ideal world, but about the kingdom life and a fallen world. And we're going to be looking at just one beatitude this morning, uh, but we can't separate the beatitude, one of them, from all the beatitude or the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, While we might be able to look at it, we want to keep in our minds this entire beginning to the sermon, all the Beatitudes. So we'll be reading the context here, verses 2 to 12. We'll come back and focus on verse 6. So this is God's Word. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, as I mentioned, we're focusing in on verse 6 this morning. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Children, have you all ever found yourself in a place... Or you're asking your parents or grandparents, uh, what's for dinner? Now, it wasn't, I assume, being a child at one time myself, it wasn't a question that just came out of curiosity, but, but it probably came because your stomach was beginning to, to grumble and you were hungry. And you're wondering, man, what are we going to eat? Or, you know, 
maybe children, you've been outside during the summer running around playing tag or or whatever it is you like to do outside because it's so much better to be outside than in front of screens and and you're running around and it's hot and and all of a sudden out of nowhere it hits you. I am so thirsty. If I don't get a drink of water, I think I'm going to fall over. So children, you know what it is a little bit to hunger and, and thirst. And adults, I trust you can remember what it was like to be a child and, and to, to have that, that hunger and, and thirst. Thankfully, for, for most of us, most likely, uh, there probably hasn't been uh, either a long season of your life or even a time uh, where, where you found yourself uh, hungering and thirsting because you were starving and didn't have the ability to get to any food or you couldn't get to clean water to drink or, or something that's there. But, but sadly, we, we look around the world today, and, and that is a reality for, for, uh, for, for some. And we see throughout history, that's a reality that others have faced where it wasn't just a, man, my stomach is grumbling and, and I wonder what's for dinner. But it was, I haven't eaten in a couple of days, and I literally think I'm going to die, and I need to find something. Or I haven't had anything to drink my throat is, is so parched. I just want to be refreshed with something. And I hope we all could imagine or, or think about, if we haven't been in that situation, what it must be like, the, the almost obsession it would be to, to find food, to find something to drink. We'd have to do it. We'd know our lives depended on it. As we truly were hungering and thirsting for food and, and, and drink. There's also a different kind of hunger and thirsting that we see uh, around us, we see in the world. I'm sure you've experienced, perhaps wrestled with. And that's not just a, a physical hunger and thirsting, but it's, but it's more of a hungering and thirsting for, for things. Uh, often it, it, it fits into categories of like pleasure, power, profits, those type of things. And those can be almost just as gripping of a hunger and a thirst that people have a desire to accomplish these things, to do whatever it takes to get them. Sadly, we, we see around the world in our, in our own communities, you, you see in history, you read about tales that, that people so gripped with this obsession, this hunger and thirst for these things that it literally brings about their own death. And then we read our verse here and we, we see that there's, there's another seemingly unquenchable thirst that comes. One that doesn't cause us to do crazy things, but but gives us a great desire. Those who are in faith in Christ, a multifaceted hunger and thirst that the Lord gives to his people. And it's one that as we look at our, our, our verse this morning, We see that only Jesus satisfies his people's hunger for legal, moral, and social righteousness. It's only in Christ that this this hunger and thirst is satisfied. And it is one that that God does give to his people when we are redeemed. He gives us this glorious and, and natural hunger and thirst for his things of righteousness. So we're going to look at three things together this morning. The Christian's hunger and thirst for legal righteousness. The Christian's hunger and thirst for moral righteousness. And the Christian's hunger and thirst for for social righteousness. So legal, moral, and social. We're going to look at together just this one little verse. Even as we keep in mind where we've been already in the great context of the Beatitudes as we have seen it so far. 
But this first hunger and thirst we see for legal righteousness, it's because Jesus, dear saints, is your Savior, that he satisfies this hunger and thirst for for legal righteousness that, that the Lord gives to you when he gives you faith. Now, there are several ways that Christians uh, have legal righteousness in Christ. Perhaps this isn't the way that we think all the time, but the scriptures lay them out for us, and we see that. But there, but there is an aspect of, uh, of the, the, the legal righteousness in our standing before God. You know, as sinners by nature, by, as sinners by action, everyone stands before God guilty of sin and worthy of sins death penalty that comes with it as we read in the scriptures. But praise the Lord, when God saves you, he removes from you. He takes that hunger and thirst that you had for for sin and things of unrighteousness that we talked about a little bit that is driving so many, and he replaces that with a no longer a sinful nature, but he replaces it with a nature that, that loves him, that hungers and thirsts for Christ, that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, a hunger and thirst that is only satisfied in Christ. And by faith in, in Christ, your Christian, your sin was imputed or placed upon Jesus when he went to the cross. And then his perfect righteousness is imputed or placed upon you. So that as you're in Christ and you stand before the Father and he looks upon you, he doesn't, he doesn't see your guilt, but instead he sees the righteousness of his Son. And there's actually a, this penalty for sin that we read about in the Scriptures, the penalty of death, paid for by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see this, this legal righteousness that we have in Jesus that's been imputed to us. We read in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, in verse 21, just of this. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The reality is, we read the scriptures, we don't want to get confused, we don't want to think the way the world thinks. And that thought might be that um, what happens is, uh, God, he says we shouldn't do certain things. And, and, and the reality is, though, that he kind of just looks the other way. And as long as we're, you know, we're good and, and, and we try to to love him and, and love other people and do these things that God, he, he kind of winks at the sin. He's like the grandpa that's like, oh, you know, kids will be kids, but I love you. But that's not the reality. The reality is that God is holy. And sin, as it came into the universe, sin has to be dealt with. It has a penalty, and it's sin. And God can't just, just ignore it. But God did something about it. And that is what we're talking about with this Imputed righteousness of Christ. That's why Christ went to the cross and died. To deal with the penalty of sin. So that you, dear saints, trusting in Christ, would not be subject to that penalty. But instead, would be able to, in Christ, enjoy the blessings and the benefits that come from being an adopted, forgiven child of God. 
Believers are legally justified by faith alone. Now, we've talked about this already in, in our time in the Beatitudes. We talk about it often. Uh, I've already mentioned it, but there's no way that you might be able to earn your salvation. You can't be good enough to earn forgiveness from God. It's not possible. There are many that try it. There are many uh, false religions and, and cults that seek to pursue that. But there is no way that we in our sinful nature and our sinfulness are able to earn our own justification before God. You know, we read in, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We're reminded it's by, by faith. It's the work of Christ, not an attempt for our own work. Salvation is a gift. You're saved by, by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read in Ephesians chapter, chapter 2. It's not about your efforts. It's about what Christ has done. And praise the Lord for that. Because of that, Christians have this uh, beautiful relationship with Christ. That we're brought into union with him. And being in union with Christ, we, we participate with him in his death and his resurrection. And because of that, we inherit all of the the glorious blessings that come from his death and his resurrection. Again, as I mentioned, as as the Father looks at us, he doesn't look at our sin, but he looks at the the righteous robes of Christ wrapped around us. And we get to enjoy that that union that we have with Christ. Let's read in Galatians chapter 4. Speaking just just of this reality here, starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's what we get to enjoy, being in union with Christ. We are an heir to the inheritance of salvation and all the glorious riches that come in that reality. We're no longer slaves bound to sin. We have been redeemed from that. And the Lord invites us, as we're going to get to come to his table here shortly and enjoy a a spiritually nourishing meal in the same way The King of Kings invites us to come to his table as his adopted sons and daughters. To come and take a seat at his table as his child. That we might enjoy all the honors, privileges, and blessings that come with being in the king's family. It's on the basis of of legal righteousness that Christians are able to enjoy these these blessings that we we speak of. It causes us to hunger and thirst for for legal righteousness. Uh, This aspect, uh, I hope what it does is one of the things is as it drives us to praise God, as it drives us in all to worship him and to be thankful that he would do such a thing for us, that the next thing we do is we love God, that we turn in love to our neighbors and want to see that for those around us, our friends, our family. They would cause us to to rejoice in our witness of Christ to those who are around us. That we would not only be praying that God might bring to salvation all those he's he's appointed unto salvation. As we read in Acts, 
but that it would cause us by faith to go forth, knowing the Spirit is at work as we share the hope of Christ with those who are around us and as we share His love in our actions. So that is the Christian's hunger and thirst for for legal righteousness, and it brings us to the Christian's hunger and thirst for, for moral righteousness. And it's because Jesus is your Lord and King that He satisfies this hunger and thirst that you have, dear saints, for moral righteousness. When God saves you, he, he proves that by making you more and more like Jesus. He conforms you to the image of his son. The spirit is working in sanctification. You know, it's a beautiful thing that happens when God saves us. Several things are happening. One, we look at the, the beauty, perhaps maybe not all the time we see the beauty of it, but the adoption into the family that God brings us in to the local church. That he doesn't just save us, redeem us, and say, Ah, have a good life. I go save some other folks. But he brings us in. And bringing us in, he gives us the the blessing of of enjoying the means of grace and and, and the means in which he has given of of the elders equipping the saints that the saints might be about the work of ministry uh, together. They might be salt and light in all things. And that is uh, beautiful and it it is glorious for us. And there's another wonderful aspect, too, though. Not just that we're brought together, which is wonderful, uh, but that the Lord doesn't leave us where he finds us. Now, we don't clean ourselves up for God. You don't have to make yourself good enough that you can be saved. But when God saves you, he does not leave you where he finds you. That's the beautiful thing. When the Lord came to me, he saved me, living in a fraternity house with all the things that go with that. God didn't say... Be well and have a good life. But the Spirit began to work. When He redeems us, there's that immediate, definitive sanctification. You are holy before me. And then He works progressively in sanctification the rest of our lives through the means of grace to make us more like Christ. So that as we grow in maturity and over time, that we can look back and praise the Lord. As we've grown in the faith and we're more and more like Christ. He didn't just leave us where he found us because he loves us. He cares for us. We heard from Dr. Ferguson earlier and a few more things. Again, if you'll give me a moment to hear what he has to say about this. Ferguson writes, Jesus saves us from sin's power and its influence. He not only brings pardon, but he works in us to make us live in our right relationship with God. Thus in Romans 5.21, Paul says that God's grace reigns in our lives through righteousness. It is not only a gift, it is our reigning king in Jesus Christ. It reigns and it does so through righteousness, never apart from righteousness. Right living is what we hunger and thirst for as well as forgiveness. If we do not, then our supposed longing for a right relationship with God has proved false. We cannot take Christ's gift of forgiveness, but neglect his demands of right living. This is one of the great tragedies of the church today that we have come to believe in what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. A savior who leaves us as much as we were instead of actually saving us from sin. How horrible that would be for God to say, 
I save you, but I don't remove you from the bondage of the enemy. That's not the invitation to the table. That's not adoption as a son and daughter of Christ, of our great God. So there are several ways Christians grow in moral righteousness with God in Christ Jesus. As I mentioned, the Holy Spirit's at work in us. There's that that moment of redemption, that definitive, declarative righteousness that we bear. There's the progressive or growing sanctification in Christ. We read in the scriptures that we are not who we once were when God comes and gives us new hearts, new natures. He redeems us. He makes us new creatures. We read that in uh, the letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we see this from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As Paul writes about this, we see this aspect of being a new creature in Christ. As he writes, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Does the Holy Spirit work sanctification using the means of grace, word, prayer, sacrament, even the fellowship of the saints? As he works in us, growing us in godliness and Christ's likeness. The Holy Spirit's at work every time you pick up the scriptures and you read. Every time we read through the continuous reading together, the Holy Spirit is at work. Whatever you, you think about God's word, you take perhaps a passage or a verse and, and, and you're, you're meditating upon it. You're sitting and you're thinking and, and, you're, and you're prayerfully mulling it through and, and you're trying to bring to bear the rest of Scripture and, and consider these things. The Holy Spirit is at work in that. Conforming you to the image of our Savior as He renews your mind in God's word. And it's interesting, our, our standards that we hold to in the PCA, this Reformed understanding that, that particularly, there's an aspect, we see it in Romans and other places, but there's a particular aspect that not just the reading, but the preaching of God's Word, that the Spirit uses that. Something as we read in the epistles, as Paul writes in the inspiration, something as foolish as preaching. Something that seems so seemingly simple and weak. And yet, that's what God chooses to use. So children, keep this in mind, but adults as well. That's why, one, ask that you pray for me throughout the week, your pastor. But when, when I come by God's grace, reading his word and praying his word, it's not in the hope that somehow I'll be able to bring some convincing argument or, or my charisma might come through if there is charisma, but instead that the Holy Spirit will be at work. That the Holy Spirit will be the one driving truth into your hearts and minds. Something that I can't do. But praise the Lord when the Spirit is at work. It happens. And we rejoice in it. The Holy Spirit uses private prayer life, your private prayer life. He uses our corporate prayer life at the church with your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Spirit uses sacraments, those covenant signs and seals, your baptism as you remember these things, these, these signs and seals, the, the Lord's Supper as we're going to uh, participate in, enjoy the spiritual nourishment, this sign and seal, this new covenant meal. The Holy Spirit uses these things, growing us and sanctifying us, growing us in moral righteousness, giving us a, a growing more and more thirst and hunger for these things, the things of God. And the Spirit even uses our fellowship here at Christ Church, bringing us together as God's people. We read about in Romans in our continuous reading from the New Testament of the body of Christ being brought together. Christ is our head. Holy Spirit uses even that, that we might in Christ, by the work of the Spirit, encourage one another, lovingly challenge one another, bring God's Word to bear, come alongside one another when we need to, and literally... Shoulder each other's burdens. Love one another. Help one another. So we looked at this legal righteousness, this moral righteousness, and for the few moments we have left, we're going to look at the Christian's hunger and thirst for social righteousness as well. The the, the third of this multifaceted aspect of righteousness that I mentioned. Because Jesus is creator, ruler, and sustainer of all things... He is the one alone that satisfies your hunger and thirst to see social righteousness. And I do think it's clear because there's been some confusion. I think if you look around and you hear some things, no one's saved by social justice or pursuing these things. Uh, we've seen it in aspects of the church and we've seen it in aspects of even the, uh, the secular side of folks who are attempting to bring about uh, a utopian society. And they pursue... It is often called social justice. But even as we understand that, we would be as Christians very wrong to not grasp that God has called us. He's equipping us to be salt and light. And is salt and light in our lives, in every sphere, everywhere we go, it is impossible not to promote biblical justice, the things that God has laid out. It's impossible to read the scriptures and think God does not care about justice as he defines it. And does not call his people to pursue that in the spheres that they're in. You would have to walk away from the scriptures. But it is important to understand them. That we not be confused. So the church, Matthew 28 we see, the church is given the mission to make disciples. And what does the disciples do? What does the individual Christians do? They go out as salt and light into the community. Having been equipped That they might go and make an impact for the Lord, a sweet aroma of Christ, being the ones that are bringing about through the love of neighbor and the power of the Spirit in them. While the world chases this unbiblical pseudo-justice that it creates its own standards and thoughts for, for what it is, God's people don't need to be afraid to be about loving our neighbor and doing biblical justice as we see in the scriptures. I think the devil, what the devil would love to see is Christians to do a couple of things. One, my faith is private. And it would be a horrible thing if I ever mentioned the scriptures to anyone. In fact, I probably should just keep it to myself completely so that when others are just spewing their opinions at me, I probably just need to sit back and shake my head, okay, yeah, that's great, and not participate in the conversation. That's one area I think the devil would love to see us do. Another would be that we might, 
as Christians or even the church take hold of the banner of the world and say we're behind the world and all it, it wants and, and is doing. And we're going to set God's word aside because it's kind of uncomfortable to think about that. And we're going to be one with our neighbors and what they desire. And I think the devil would love to see that. I think the devil would love to see you afraid to be salt and light. He'd love to see you tasteless and in a light under a bushel. To be afraid to witness Christ and, and your attitudes, actions, words, and deeds. I don't, I'm not the devil. I don't know his mind, but, but I could see the devil and the forces of spiritual darkness wanting that. An impotent church, an impotent Christian, scared of their own shadow, caring not for the glory of God, seeking not God's kingdom or his righteousness. If I was the devil, that's the things I would be pursuing. But again, we're not going to bring about a utopia. We've seen, sadly, that attempt over and over in history, and it always ends with a lot of dead people. So we're not going to accomplish that. There will be no heaven this side of glory. In the return of Christ, the new heavens, the new earth. Yet the Lord does call us to be salt and light in our lives, in every sphere we have, every day, in every moment. It's part of loving God by obeying him. It's part of loving our neighbor. And one of the glorious things it does is, as we love our neighbor in this way is that the Spirit often uses it as being salt and light adorns the gospel, opens the door for the witnessing of Christ and evangelism. So we're going to close just reading a few verses as we think about this social righteousness aspect. First, we're going to turn our attention to Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. As we read, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We turn our attention back to Matthew, but we, uh, we go forward a little bit. Matthew chapter, six, or chapter 5, but verse 16, we read, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, 17. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And there's tons and tons of more we can go to. Just one more. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, 
and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Only Jesus satisfies his people's hunger for legal, moral, and social righteousness. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this time we've had in your word. We thank you for the recording of uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And, Lord, we do rejoice uh, that we see this description of kingdom life in this fallen world, even as it draws our attention over and over to you, it draws our attention to Christ in whom We have hope and salvation. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.